take your Bible if you brought one, or your Bible app, and go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. My story is a series about your story, and it's a series about my story. And of course, it is a series about God's story. Are they connected? I mean, are they really connected? Is your story and my story somehow interwoven into God's story, his eternal plan for humanity and the universe? The Bible says that it is. How do our stories relate to God's overall eternal story? We want to explore that idea for the next few weeks. You know, something you're, you're going to recognize, and Morell's story was a great example of this. Over the next few weeks, as people share their stories, you're going to recognize transformation, a change from one thing to another. It cannot be ignored. It cannot be overlooked. You can't miss it. Last week when I told you my story, you may have noted the transformation from, from optimism to pessimism and then to faith, uh, from my personal strength to my collapsed weakness to strength in God and strength from God. You see, that's because of what we're going to talk about today. The reason transformation is so obvious in people's stories is because of Jesus' story, because of the resurrection, because of his promise then to empower the church. You see, I hope you understand, wherever you are along in your faith walk, that central to the Christian faith is Jesus' story. You take away the story of Jesus, there is no Christianity. And Jesus' story is a story about resurrection, life after death, and his empowerment of the church. You see, by recording Christ's appearances following the resurrection, the book of Acts removes all doubt as to its actual happening. The resurrection revolution of the first century started the church. And 2,000 years later, we're a part of it. A revolution that was built on the resurrection. In fact, that's what we ought to call it, the resurrection revolution. The New Testament is built upon it. Take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story of Jesus, and there is no New Testament. In fact, I would argue there is no Bible as we know it. You see, when Jesus left his closest followers... 40 days after the resurrection, he gave them instructions. We call it the Great Commission. It's recorded in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. He said, now, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, think about this for a moment. When Jesus ascended to the Father, leaving the disciples by themselves, what did they do? They didn't re-preach his sermons, right? I mean, that's what we would do when a, a philosopher or a religious leader dies. We then explore their writing. We examine their speeches. We study their worldview and their philosophy. That's not what the apostles did. They didn't retell all of his parables, you know what they did? They talked about his resurrection. Because if you separate the resurrection from Christianity, 
there is no Christianity. There is no church. In fact, here's the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, he writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Paul said, the very first thing we have to get straight is the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there would be no Christianity. Enter the book of Acts. Following the four gospels, the four biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, comes the book of Acts, which describes in great detail this resurrection revolution as it began gaining momentum throughout Europe and Asia Minor. Acts is the first work of church history that was ever written. Acts records events that followed Christ's death and his resurrection. It provides information on the first 30 years of church's history. This material in the book of Acts is found nowhere else in the New Testament. Church, I'd like to challenge every one of you to read through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts over the next few weeks, because we're going to hit some of the highlights as the series progresses. Some translations, when you open your Bible, they, they title the book, The Acts of the Apostles. And I get it, because the, the story or the book chronicles the actions of Paul and Peter and James and John, but perhaps a more accurate title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. See, the book of Acts is Jesus making good on his promise to empower the church. In fact, those are the two things you need to get as we go forward. The resurrection of Jesus is the cornerstone of our faith. That's what matters most, all right? And then Jesus did not leave his apostles alone. He promised to empower or fill the church. You see, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the early church flourished, even in the midst of intense suffering and persecution. Followers of Jesus Christ were coming out of the woodwork. The church is growing from a very small number of disciples and Christ followers. It's growing exponentially in a very short time. Now, the book of Acts was penned around A.D. 62. Here's how we know that. In A.D. 65, Nero began persecuting the Christians, and Luke records none of that. In A.D. 70, the emperor, uh, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, and Luke records none of that. So about 30 years following the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Luke sits down and pens the early formation and momentum of the early church. Luke is the author, even though he's not named in the book. If you recall, Luke is a doctor. He's a Greek. Luke is the only Greek author of the New Testament. Along with his book, Luke, the gospel, the biography, Luke is also the author of Acts. He was a close friend of the Apostle Paul. He was an eyewitness to many of the events that he describes in the work. I want to begin in the very first verse. Look at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. 
In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Theophilus was a wealthy man who financed Dr. Luke's research. Luke was a doctor. He was very into detail. That's why when you read the Gospel of Luke, he covers more detail than any other of the four. Theophilus financed his research. If it were not for Theophilus and Luke, it is very likely that you and I would not have our Bible. A lot of people think the story of the Bible begins with Genesis. It actually begins with Luke. Here's how. The resurrection revolution had gained so much momentum. People were willing to give their lives for the faith, to follow Jesus Christ. Theophilus becomes very curious. He buys in, becomes a follower of Jesus. He wants someone with knowledge, education, and expertise to document the story of Jesus Christ. He hires Luke. He finances the research. Luke puts together all the eyewitness testimony, and he puts it together in story format, and we come up with the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke then began to be circulated among the churches. Every group of followers of Jesus Christ would get their hands on the Gospel of Luke. They would make their own copy. They would copy it down for themselves. As Greeks began to get more and more enthusiastic and more and more inquisitive about the resurrected Jesus Christ, then they wanted to learn about his history, his people, the Jews. So then they went to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament sprang to life among the Greek-speaking world. So because of Theophilus and because of Luke, they not only had the story, the accounts of Jesus Christ, the apostles' letters, the epistles in the latter part of the New Testament, they then put them together to form the entire Bible, Old Testament and New. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Those instructions were the great commission that we examined just a moment ago. Go and tell my story. Those were the instructions. Now, I don't know if you've ever recognized this, But throughout God's story, and that's really what this is, it's his divine revelation, it is his eternal story, throughout God's story you will note some significant transitions, a shift in how God relates to his people. In fact, if you were to ask me to kind of outline the Bible in three simple statements, here's how I would do it. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, they speak to the creation and the fall of humanity. When God created the heavens and the earth, the universe was perfect in its form and function. But man decided to go his own way as opposed to God's way, and at that moment, the universe fell from its original glory. It fell from its original perfection. That's why we say we live in a fallen universe, okay? It's the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. You familiar with the word entropy? Uh, The second law of thermodynamics teaches that every system in our universe, while ordered, is declining. In other words, an intelligent designer set it in motion, but as it continues to expand, it is in a state of decline. That's the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3. Now, starting in Genesis chapter 4, all the way to the book of Revelation, The bulk of your Bible, that is the story of God's relentless pursuit of humanity. Man walked away from God in Genesis 3. God lost his creation, so to speak. 
And from Genesis 4 all the way to to the book of Revelation, it describes in great detail, century upon century upon century, plan upon plan upon plan, as it continues to unfold, as God continues to try to get us back. By the time we get to the book of Revelation, the union has taken place. God has redeemed his people through his son, Jesus Christ, and now they're in store for an eternal blessing. You see, the way God reveals himself to humanity has changed throughout the centuries. We call these dispensations. That's a theological term. You're going to learn something theological at church today. I am a dispensationalist. Here's what that means. That means that while God has not changed over the centuries, his means of revelation has changed. Follow me? What Abraham, excuse me, what Adam and Eve experienced with God was very different from what Abram experienced with God. And what Moses experienced with God was very different than what David experienced with God. Old Testament sacrificial worship under the law, was very different than New Testament worship of Jesus Christ. Again, God has not changed, but his means of revelation, how he chose to reveal himself to humanity, has. Important to understanding the book of Acts, as you read it over the next few weeks, is to recognize these kinds of transitions. Luke records many of them. Times were changing in the book of Acts. People were changing. God's relationship with man was changing. His revelation was changing. The book of Acts either directly identifies those changes, those transitions, or at least alludes to them as it records them. Let me give you just a few meaningful translations in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, there's a transition from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the apostles. Because Jesus has ascended to the Father, the apostles are now responsible to tell the story of Jesus. There's a transition from the old covenant or the old agreement, the Old Testament, to the new. There's a transition from Israel as God's witness to the church as being God's witness. You ever wonder why there are so many laws and customs and restrictions on God's people in the Old Testament? I mean, you get in Leviticus, and you can get bogged down, right? I mean, there's a lot of information there. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of ritual. The reason God had so many laws and rituals and rules surrounding his people was because in the Old Testament, Israel was his primary witness to humanity. God wanted to carve out a nation unto himself that was separate. It was distinct. It was unlike all the pagan nations surrounding her. But according to Acts and Luke, its author, Along comes Jesus and the resurrection revolution, and that completely changed. Now we, the church, we're supposed to be the witness. We're supposed to be the light in the darkness. There's another transition from the dispensation of the law to the dispensation of grace. Here's a big one. A transition from the Spirit as God's presence to the Spirit's indwelling every believer. That is enormous. It cannot be missed in the book of Acts. You realize... That in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon a person to enable them to accomplish a specific God-ordained task. For instance, the Spirit of God came upon David. And remember, after David's egregious sin with Bathsheba, when he penned that psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, he said, Father, do not take your Spirit from me. Why? Because it could happen in the Old Testament. 
The story of Samson is one God's presence, the Spirit of God was upon Samson until he disobeyed, until he broke his vow. And the Bible says that he rose up and he did not know that God's Spirit had left him. That's not the way it works in the New Testament. Acts records the transition from the Spirit of God as merely a presence to the Spirit's indwelling every follower of Christ. My body, according to the Bible, the New Testament, is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Now, remember, this whole movement is based upon Jesus' story. Jesus' story is what gives the church its muscle, its foundation, the resurrection of Christ and his promise to empower the church. Without one or the other, the New Testament as we know it would not exist. The church as we know it would not exist. So, very quickly, let's identify both of them individually. Number one, the resurrection of Christ. Pick up in verse 3. Let's pick up where we left off. Acts 1 verse 3. After his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of heaven. The Christian church would not exist were it not for these many convincing proofs that Jesus was alive following his death, that life can come from death. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. I need to remind everybody in the church, because we tend to forget this, As a follower of Jesus Christ, I live in an invisible kingdom of light, God's kingdom. That kingdom exists within a visible kingdom of darkness. End of verse 3, verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised. That's the Holy Spirit, which you have heard me speak about. John 14, John 16, on the night of his betrayal, Jesus explained the coming Holy Spirit to his disciples. Let me find my place. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Literally, you will be immersed. You will be covered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The response of the apostles to that statement, verse 8, spawned the early church revolution. Jesus Christ was alive. Luke wants to make sure we understand Jesus had to show power over death. If he were not alive, then why carry out the Great Commission? If he's not alive, why suffer for your faith? Why go along with God's plan? Why follow Jesus at all? If you noticed in verse 3, Luke gave us three kinds of proof. In verse 3, he gave us visual proof, meaning he presented himself. You see that, verse 3? He presented himself to him. Then he gave them time proof. He spent 40 days with them. You see, this this glimpse of a resurrected Christ wasn't some sort of dream. It wasn't some sort of vision they all saw in the sky. The clouds didn't look like a resurrected Christ. It didn't happen in an instant. There was time proof over a period of 40 days. And then there was audible proof. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Remember, this is a time of great transition. 
The work of the entire Old Testament, God's relentless pursuit of humanity, had come to a climax. Jesus Christ had fulfilled that plan. And it's now being handed over to a few believers, a few followers who would form the early church. The resurrection is the most important part of Jesus' story, but he didn't stop there. The second part is his promise to empower the church. That's, that's where you and I come in. Notice, uh, turn one page over to Acts chapter 2 and look at verse 1. Luke writes, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Pentecost means 50. Penta, five, 50. Uh, This was an annual celebration. It was a big deal to Jews. And Jews from hundreds of miles around, they would all descend upon Jerusalem. And they brought with them their their customs. They brought with them their families. They brought with them their, their own languages, their own dialects. And they all gather in Jerusalem. Pentecost is commemorating the Old Testament where it was 50 days after the Exodus, the great emancipation, it was 50 days later that God delivered the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's what Pentecost stands for. Verse 2, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. In your Bible, especially in the Old Testament, the wind most often represents the power of God. Wind symbolizes God's power. We've gotten a close-up glimpse of the power of wind in recent days from our neighbors in Florida. Verse 3, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. In your Bible, especially the Old Testament, fire symbolizes the presence of God. So in the wind and the fire, you've got the power and the presence of God, and it's being poured out on the church. He's empowering his church. Keep reading. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, literally other languages. If we were to continue to read later in chapter 2, we'd find out that Peter stands up and he delivers a sermon. And all those people who've traveled from hundreds of miles away and they brought with them their own language and their own dialect, they were able to hear the story of Jesus in their own native language, even in their own dialect. This is fascinating. This is Jesus making good on his promise to empower his church. In chapter 1, in verse 4, when he said, wait in Jerusalem for the gift, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But at this point, you got to remember, see, Jesus has left them. He had ascended to the Father, but he didn't leave them alone. Think about it. This small group of Christ followers, they had his example. They had his information, they had his technique, they had his proof of his resurrection, but they did not have his power. They did not have his ability. They could not do what he could do. The promised gift of the Holy Spirit is going to allow them then to accomplish that great commission. You see, the story of Jesus, it changes everything. There had never been a religious figure like Jesus There had never been a religious leader in ancient history anything like Jesus from Nazareth. He promised direct access to a loving, merciful, heavenly Father. He not only claimed to be a representative of God, Jesus claimed to be God himself. So when his followers responded, then they became part of God's overarching eternal story to rescue mankind. And Acts 
tells that story, along with a lot of other good stories you probably learned in Sunday school class. Acts chapter 5, you ever heard of Ananias and Sapphira? Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles. They sold a piece of property. They pretended to give all the money, like any good church hypocrite would do, but instead they kept some back to themselves, and they dropped dead there on the spot. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is the first recorded martyr of the church. In Acts chapter 9, Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changes for him. He becomes the first and greatest apostle in the New Testament. Paul then teams up with Barnabas. They're the first missionary team. That's in Acts chapter 13. Incidentally, because Barnabas was the only one willing to embrace Paul because everyone else was afraid of Saul. Saul was about persecuting the church. Saul was about stoning Christ followers. But when Saul's life changed in Acts chapter 16, he became a follower of Jesus and Barnabas embraced him. Then Paul teams up with Silas and they're in an earthquake and the jailer of the uh, a Philippian jailer, his whole life has changed and the life of his family. Acts covers prison breaks, earthquakes, shipwrecks, snake bites, and near-death experiences. It's all there. The book of Acts is the story of how Jesus impacted the world through a relatively small number of people who were willing to allow God to include them in the telling of his story. And that's what I want you to see as I quit. That opportunity awaits us all. That opportunity is for any of us, even today. I'm no Paul. I'm no John, certainly, but my story matters in relation to his. You see, the only thing that makes my story significant is its connection to God's overarching eternal story. The only way that my story even makes sense is in view or is viewed as part of God's story. You see, when you decided to follow Jesus, do you know what you did? You surrendered the pen. You surrendered the pen because you're no longer the author. God is using every available resource to write your story as part of his. So here's my challenge to you, and we quit. Embrace the significance because you matter. No matter where you've been or what you've done, you matter because you're loved. God went to great personal expense and sacrifice to demonstrate that love for you, and then surrender to the writer. You see, wherever you are right now, you ought to give God complete and total control, complete and total authority in your life. That is the best move you will ever, ever make. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that my story matters, that their story matters but only in relationship to Jesus' story, the story of resurrection, of hope, of life, of meaning. Father, as we go into our, our week, I pray that you would remind us that we are significant, that we do matter, but not because of anything we've managed to cultivate or create, but because we're simply part of your story. And Father, I pray that you'll give us a heart of surrender, willing to follow wholeheartedly. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.